Welcome and thank you for joining us for this recorded interview with Professor Gary Brown to discuss artificial intelligence and the law of war. My name is Iria Jufrida, visiting assistant professor of law at William & Mary Law School and associate director for research at the Center for Legal and Court Technology, in short, CLCT. I'm joined by my colleague, William & Mary Chancellor Professor of Law and the director of CLCT, Fred Letter, as we welcome our guest, Professor Gary Brown. Just a short overview of Professor Brown's biography. He currently serves as Professor of Practice at the College of Information and Cyberspace at the National Defense University. Professor Brown served for 25 years as a judge advocate with the United States Air Force, culminating in his role as the first senior legal counsel for the U.S. Cyber Command. From there, he served as head of communication and congressional affairs for the Washington delegation of the International Committee on the Red Cross, and then he became professor of cybersecurity at the Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia. He also worked as a cyber policy and strategy analyst for the U.S. Department of Justice. Professor Brown is active in education, consulting, and advocacy regarding cyber law and policy. He regularly speaks on cyber operations, law, and policy, and we're absolutely delighted to welcome him today. But before we begin, I would like to note that all views and opinions expressed in this interview are the personal views of the speakers and do not represent the official position of the Department of Defense, the National Defense University, William & Mary Law School, or any other affiliated institution. And now, please join us to discuss the aspects of artificial intelligence and the law of war with Professor Brown. It's good to be here. Um, uh, if I may, I'm going to drop the formal titles and just um, speak with you in the first person, Gary. Um, you have, of course, this um, vast expertise that you gained both from the political uh, policy side and the practitioner side. Can you guide us through the landscape of cyber warfare? What are the key themes that you are experiencing or noticing in your in your career? Right. So cyber warfare is not really different than traditional warfare uh, so much. It's, uh, we've struggled uh, with how it fits into the legal landscape, but for, uh, for warfighters, it's not so different. We mostly think about cyber techniques in the U.S. in particular as supporting more traditional military means, or at least this has been the traditional way we've, we've thought about it. So when we started uh, Cyber Command back in uh, 2010, the idea was that we would put everything under one roof, cyber offense, cyber defense, and uh, sort of general cyber security so we could have uh, one place to gather the expertise to watch out for that for the Department of Defense and, and ultimately for the defense of the nation. Um, of course, as we've gone forward, we've, we've learned a lot uh, as, as we've started to practice in the field. And one of the things uh, I would say I've learned is that uh, I've changed my mind really about the efficacy of the law of armed conflict uh, with regard to cyber warfare because in trying to apply the, the rules that we have for the law of armed conflict to uh, real uh, no-kidding cyber warfare techniques as opposed to those uh, techniques that are just in support of kinetic operations, um, I have found that that the law of armed conflict doesn't necessarily cover the situations that we're most concerned about. So this has been uh, a real learning process for me. And, and now just to lay the groundwork for uh, what we can hopefully discuss a, a bit later, uh, I'll say the other thing we didn't notice or we didn't spot uh, as, a, as the 
big issue when we started Cyber Command is that really on network operations, as important as they are, uh, have have paled uh, in comparison to the information operations that the United States has been victim to over the past, uh, in particular, couple of years. And, and I think that this um, certainly is, is something that the literature is starting to bring out. These are themes that are certainly very, um, very topical. Um, can you sort of summarize? It's it's a very big and difficult question. It, your thesis is that the the legal framework is actually not well suited to apply to the reality. Are there so, some practical considerations and that guided you to change your outlook throughout your career? Yes. So so there are a couple of things, and I I won't get uh, too much in the weeds with this, but the. Um, with regard to uh, the use ad bellum, so when we're talking about the law of, of uh, resorting to armed conflict or resorting to war, we, you know, we generally think of ourselves in a state of peace and we're looking for an event that drives us beyond the threshold of, of war. We don't have a good rule set to, to govern what types of truly cyber events would drive us across the threshold. We can think of easily think of many examples where cyber-enabled operations cause kinetic events that would drive us across the threshold. And the, the classic one being um, hackers cause a, a, a nuclear meltdown, nuclear plant to meltdown or uh, drop a dam by over, over spinning a turbine. Um, of course, these things could potentially drive us across the, the threshold. But, but it's much more difficult to think of a a cyber operation, even a very significant cyber operation that doesn't cross that kinetic threshold that would push us across this, uh, this line to armed conflict. So we'd be talking about interference with uh, data online or uh, these types of disruptive operations that don't, ride, that don't damage or destroy anything, but they disrupt uh, nor the normal functioning of equipment. It's it's unclear that those are really sufficient to push us across the threshold to armed conflict. The, the second part of that is with regard to the use in bellow. So when we're talking about actual, actually the law of armed conflict. So in the context of an armed conflict, I find it sometimes difficult to see which cyber operations, even in the context of an armed conflict, would result in the triggering of the principles of the law of armed conflict. So for instance, we think of uh, the principle of distinction. Mm -hmm. it's, it is the law that in the context of an armed conflict, when armed forces choose targets, they must choose targets that are military targets, not civilian targets, whether that's people or, or property. Or infrastructure. Or, or, that's right, or whatever. The problem is that principle is triggered on attack. And it's unclear exactly what cyber activity would constitute an attack. We generally think of attacks as resulting in destruction or, or damage. That's right, or loss of life or, or injury. Most cyber uh, operations in the context of armed conflict don't result in any of those things that would trip us uh, over the line to an attack. And, and therefore, there is at least an argument or some unclarity about whether or not that those principles apply, including the principle of distinction, which we think of those of us who practice uh, the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law think of that as 
an absolutely essential guideline. Yeah, it's, it's the core of that body of law. And if it doesn't apply, really the body of law has no meaning. Uh, so it's, that's a specific uh, issue. So this is Fred Lederer. Do I understand you then, and I have done a cursory reading of the Talon II manual and report, that if a country were, for instance, to conduct technological espionage against another country, that would not be one of the acts that you're talking about. I, I think that's clear, that that would not be an act that would push you across the threshold to war. <clears throat> Insofar as international law is concerned, where would that fit? If that's not an act of war, is, is, it, it? is it just friendly espionage and one should expect people to do that? <laughs> so the United States has, uh, has tried to distinguish between, uh, to parse espionage, at least to, to distinguish uh, between two different types of espionage. That is what we might call national security espionage and what we might call uh, commercial espionage. So national security espionage, Everybody does that. It's understood that everybody does that. It's a, it's a, it's a quote-unquote, probably very inappropriately named, gentleman's agreement uh, in the international community that it's neither lawful nor unlawful. It just exists in this uh, gray zone or, or ungoverned zone, uh, espionage does. The U.S. And, and some close allies of the U.S. have tried to make the argument that that non-rule set does not apply to commercial espionage, so the theft of intellectual property for commercial gain. This is, a, this is a, the U.S. argument. Uh, I don't think that the majority international position is in line with the U.S. position. I think that's a relatively, uh, that's a position held by relatively few countries. Clearly is not a position shared with China uh, or Russia, um, and there have been reports over the years, even predating uh, really a significant uh, presence in cyberspace with even some of our pretty close allies that we can read about in, in the newspaper that have, they've engaged in some theft of defense technology uh, from us. And as pointed out by historians, most of the U.S. economy was based on the theft of, of industrial technology from Great Britain uh, with the textiles industry in, in New England. And that was actually a national policy uh, in the early 19th century so of the U.S. So it's now maybe times have changed, uh, certainly true. And it's definitely in the U.S. interest to stop the, the uh, theft of our intellectual property. So I, don't, I certainly uh, um, wouldn't fault the U.S. for trying to make that argument, but I don't think it's been widely accepted internationally. So basically, electronic commercial espionage is uh, just one of the things one has to live with and attempt to combat on an individual uh, level. Well, I think that that's more or less true. I mean, I do think there are legal remedies available, mm -hmm. and the U.S. is starting to uh, avail itself of those. And, uh, in fact, I just had a conversation today with a, with a China expert who is, at least one expert, is of the opinion that those have had an impact in China, those indictments, mm -hmm. uh, in particular the indictments of the... Uh, the People's Liberation Army uh, officers who uh, who engaged in some of the commercial hacking uh, because the, the idea is that it's embarrassing, if nothing else, for China to be called out and because they're trying to um, position themselves as a law-abiding state. And so to be called out with having their uh, you know army members engaging in that kind of activity is embarrassing. If I could change the discussion for a brief moment, 
Um, you have occupied some critically important positions, and you have been in government in one form or the other or associated with it for multiple careers, actually. Um, what's your thought about the degree to which decision makers are familiar with the basic technology that we're talking about and the ability of experts like yourself to be able to explain to them in a practical, realistic fashion the difficulties that we face? That's, that's a great question, Fred. The, uh, the level of expertise among decision makers for the most part is low <laughs> in this area. So there, there is a real role for uh, senior folks on the staff to translate for decision makers from the technical experts, uh, as long as we're willing to make ourselves smart enough to understand what the technical experts are saying and translate it. And, and I actually found and, and uh, would share with, with uh, lawyers who are thinking about going in the field as well, I found that there is a real uh, niche there for lawyers because obviously one of our specialties is communicating. And if you can <clears throat> take the technical uh, information and the technical language and turn it into ordinary language and <clears throat> I, I hesitate to say dumb it down, but essentially distill it down to its basic bones, <clears throat> excuse me, to share with the decision makers. Uh, that's a real, really valuable skill. You have to have an affinity for technology and a willingness to, to work hard to study, but you do not have to be an engineer or an, a technical expert yourself. You just have to be willing to spend the time to, to uh, understand. So uh, one follow-up question that may be one you either can't or would prefer not to answer then um, if we had a lawyer about to graduate who would want to become an Air Force lawyer with an interest and knowledge in cyber technology in particular, um, be a, a help for career purposes or would it be perhaps, shall we say, merely incidental? No, I think, I think it's a help. And uh, the, the cyber law field, the technical law field is expanding continuously in and out of government. So I, I think it's an absolute bonus to have that. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Gary, some of the, the um, going back to sort of the slightly more theoretical questions, so the um, legal definitions, in particular international humanitarian law, uh, comes out from centuries of states having a go at each other, right? Mm. And, you know, you start with a glove and you slap somebody around the face and we get to much more formal declaration of wars. And what you're telling us is that while in the, I really like, and I'm sure it's a terminology that you use very often, it's quite new to me, the kinetic side, that there are triggering factors that are visual, that are understandable for the, also for the mm. non-technical brain. Um, the, the difficulty in the cyber world is it's complex, is subtle, is not visible unless it triggers something. And um, uh, certainly common people don't find it quite quite as immediate to, to grasp. How can the legal system, or so what is your vision of the legal system trying to fill this void? We know the legal system is quite naturally will overspill and try to find a balance. Do we need to wait for a real case scenario that may trigger something and then perhaps we get to the ICJ and something happens that way? Or do you think that something is sort of emerging subtly in the background? It's a, it's a great question. Probably a billion dollar question, yes. isn't it? Yes, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, a, uh, it's a big question. So I'll, I'll try to uh, 
try to come at it from a couple of different ways. Uh, one thing, uh, and one of the things we learned, I, I was part of the group that worked on uh, the Tallinn Manual on International Law and Cyber Warfare. One of the things uh, Professor Schmidt constantly reminded us uh, was, we don't make law, states make international law. Experts don't make law, we just uh, give our opinion about law. So there are some strong opinions in the Tallinn Manual, um, but, but the intent of the, both manuals was to record existing law and not to make new law. That being said, I, th I think uh, what I said before reflects, uh, <clears throat> reflects the law as it's written in the Tallinn Manual. But uh, Professor Schmidt and others, really <clears throat> good international law experts, have, have pushed forward since, have advanced the idea that perhaps uh, international humanitarian law should expand to cover these situations that I described before and situations in which systems are merely disrupted or their functionality is impacted and that that should count as, a, as a, an attack for purposes of IHL. My concern with that is that, first of all, states made the law and the law is what the states made and, and that's not part of the law states made. So we might want... Uh, very much for that to be the law, but right now it is not the law. And the, the overarching concern is that the body of law we have, uh, LOACR, IHL, I use both <laughs> interchangeably, um, having had a foot in the European camp and a foot in the American camp, so <laughs> I, I can't help it, I'm sorry. Um, the, the challenge we have is that it's worked relatively well for kinetic operations, and what we don't want to do is damage it for kinetic operations by trying to expand it too much for cyber operations. And there are some, I, I won't go into them because it's, it's difficult to lay the, the groundwork for it, but there are some situations where in attempting to expand it for cyber, you'd end up with uh, untenable situations in the kinetic side. So I, th I think that's a real concern. But the, the other uh, side of the coin, I would say, is that if we carefully examine the action, or in this case, mostly inaction of states, we can start to make the argument that states perhaps are laying some groundwork for customary law. Because what we've seen so far is that states have an incredibly high pain threshold when it comes to cyber operations. So maybe that's the law we want. The law we want is do this and none of it will ever cross the threshold until you have a kinetic event. I don't know that that's where we'll end up and maybe uh, will some state will incident or, or even non-state group will incidentally trip across a threshold that a state finds intolerable and, and uh, begins an armed conflict. But um, that does not appear to be where states are. And I, as an example, I mean, the U.S., of course, being the most vocal and, and really the most important state in, in, in this area because of our uh, wide practice and also our willingness to talk more than other states, although still not very much about about cyber. Um, in the, uh, if you remember the the uh, Sony hack a, a couple of years ago, that was that's been attributed by the U.S. to to uh, North Korea. The Obama administration called that cyber vandalism. So that was precisely the kind of event that some experts had said could trip us across the threshold to war, and the administration publicly um, labeled it vandalism, which means to me, meant that the administration was stating this is not enough to push us to armed conflict. So that involved, you know, very significant damage to uh, property and, you know, theft of intellectual property. Um, but we decided it wasn't a, 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 an act of war, to use an old-fashioned term. 
And I think this is the the beauty and the curse of customer international law. Mm. It, it keeps moving, and um, the cyber element adds a, a whole new dimension um, to the relationship between states. And so it's it's um, um, I, I, I like the thought that states by not doing anything are actually doing something. They're, they're telling us something. Um, um, and as you say, there may be a triggering factor at some point, but not yet. And, right. and um, uh, uh, What I wanted to do, Gary. Could, could I just sure. stop you for a minute? <coughs> Earlier, you reply, you, you referred, I think, quite properly to some of the more extreme events that could take place. And one of the classic, of course, is um, opening dams. and or crashing the country's entire electrical grid, I suspect. Um, there have been any number of uh, reported uh, references suggesting that uh, at least Russia potentially has malware planted throughout the infrastructure of the United States. Does the planting of the ability to trigger an event trouble us to the same degree as actually doing it? <clears throat> it's another great question. Uh, the the um, one of the big issues with the the uh, pre implants of malware is that most of that malware is dual use. It can be used for espionage or for more destructive purposes. So, because we have a system that permits apparently, <laughs> uh, more or less, and under the international system, national security espionage, mm -hmm. uh, we couldn't make a very convincing argument that finding this malware on our systems pushes us across a threshold. So, so then we have to look at it um, through another lens and, and try to determine whether or not it could be then activated. For instance, if it just gives access to a system, what, uh, what an operator does with that access is completely up to the operator, so if you have root access to a system. So if, if it's capable of engaging in destructive or damaging activity, it appears that states aren't doing anything, anything special with that. But there would be a, a, a pretty good legal argument that that is a fundamentally different case than mere espionage. And again, cyberspace is particularly challenging because in the, in the kinetic space and physical space, it's much easier to determine whether or not somebody's engaging in espionage or getting ready to, to attack. Not at all easy in cyberspace, but that is a troubling thing. Some have speculated that one of the reasons, for instance, the U.S. hasn't made a big fuss out of that is that perhaps uh, they have similar practices. Oh, which is, uh, um, uh, now, if I may just steer ever so slightly the, the conversation on another sort of hot topic um, in, in this space, um, uh, lethal autonomous weapons or laws uh, as, a, as, a, as an acronym, um, they have certainly captured the... Um, interest of um, um, sort of regular civilians and um, academics and businesses, because of course there's a, there's, there's an element um, to that. And I think we'll start with a more general question in terms of um, your vision of um, international humanitarian law dealing with weapons that are capable of um, uh, what is deploying or sort of detonating or whatever is operating autonomously and um, sorry if I make you laugh in terms of my terminology is terrible um, so we, we look first from sort of the purely theoretical sort of here is the legal system and how do these weapons sit alongside um, the rules 
Yeah, I, I there has been obviously been a movement to uh, prohibit the development even of, of lethal autonomous weapons. Um, I have to say, m much as I wish it were uh, otherwise, I don't think the law has a lot interesting to say mm -hmm. about lethal autonomous weapons. I, I don't think under the law, under IHL, they're much different than traditional weapons. And of course, there's a, uh, there's a constant debate about how we define autonomy in weapons. So there's a, I, I, have, I had a discussion just the other day with a military officer who corrected me, oh, how dare he, um, uh, when I talked about autonomous weapons, and he said, what you're talking about is automatic. And of course, not automatic weapon in terms of like an automatic rifle, but a weapon that just uh, is, is given a task and always fires, for instance, counter battery fire, or even the phalanx uh, uh, close in weapon system that we put on our naval ships. So they just have a, a, an area or an event and they fire no matter what um, with, with lethal force. Um, then we talk about, you know, on the loop, in the loop, and I'm sure you've uh, you've discussed all this. I, I, so, I guess I'll just lay down a couple of uh, thoughts that I have about it. One is, uh, I think the development of these weapons is inevitable, and I, I think uh, the West can either get on board and try to develop the weapons that meet the standards we need them to meet, or we can stand on the sidelines and watch other states develop weapons that probably won't meet those standards, and, and maybe they'll develop them anyway, but we'll, we'll then be uh, behind. So I, I just don't see any way to stop uh, the combination of, of the computing power that we have and, and weapons, and, and, uh, and I just think that's, uh, that's living in a fantasy world to think we'll, we would stop that. Um, I, I, I also think that the inflection point is the, the danger zone, as it is with most new technologies. So the, the time when we move from human control to machine control, that's where the technology gets dodgy and where accidents happen. And, and for instance, we've seen this in a, in a couple of aircraft accidents where crews come to rely on uh, autopilot and then when the autopilot says, I, this, I don't understand anymore and hands the control back to the crew, the crew isn't able to recover because they haven't been carefully following. Some of them are, are le well, they're much less experienced than they used to be. And so in, in particular, we had that Air France uh, incident uh, in the Atlantic that resulted in a large loss of life. And, and most uh, experts say that's really the result of them not being able to take the handover from the... Uh, essentially autonomous system that was there. So <clears throat> we do have to be careful in how we manage the transition back and forth. It's, it's uh, one of the suggestions has been made is that we have systems where humans operate and machines do the overwatch as opposed to the, the reverse, which is what we normally do. And the reverse is dangerous now. Mm -hmm. um, maybe someday we'll, we'll be beyond that. But the other, the, the only, most of the issues involved from my experience talking to IHL experts with lethal autonomous weapon systems are moral issues, not legal issues. And setting those aside, um, the only legal issue I've heard that made sense to me is that there has to be accountability. We have to be able to hold someone accountable uh, for any incidents that happen. So if, if, a, if uh, the wrong target is hit, if a civilian target is hit by, uh, by accident or, or whatever, we have to be able to have a human to hold responsible. You can't really hold an AI responsible, although maybe someday. Um, the, I think this is true. 
but I also think, uh, for example, um, I, when I was the legal advisor for air operations in, in the desert for the, for the coalition, um, you know, we would give carefully examined targets, carefully examined rules of engagement and the law and uh, give a legal thumbs up on a strike. Everyone would do their jobs correctly. The weapon would be released from the airplane and sometimes the weapons don't deploy correctly and weapons would fall many, many, many meters away from where they were supposed to fall. Not, not very often, not very often at all, but sometimes. And who's responsible then? Uh, well, everyone did what they were supposed to do and it was, an, it was an accident in war. And I guess in some cases, in theory, we could have held responsible the manufacturer of the weapon because it didn't deploy properly. But I, I can't say that there's been a big push to go back and hold you know, whichever aerospace industry uh, company may, manufactured the weapon to hold them responsible whenever one goes, goes astray. So I don't think it's a lot different uh, with lethal autonomous weapons. I'll make one other point about it, which is sort of a, a pet point of mine. M many times, I find this when I talk uh, a lot of times to European colleagues who come from uh, civil law uh, tradition instead of the common law tradition. Many times they'd like to see, when I talk to them about how the United States supplies rules of engagement, for instance, they want to see many, many pages. I always say a 700-item checklist is what I say, you know, you, before we use force. Yeah, and of course this isn't the way it's done. Military officers are trained and then are given the authority to engage when they, when they exercise their appropriate judgment that it's appropriate to do, and they'll be held accountable if they do it wrong. And that's just the way the system works. There isn't time to run a long checklist for humans. But if what you really want is a long checklist that has to be, uh, that has to be completed before uh, lethal force is employed, what you want is autonomous weapons. You should be arguing in favor of autonomous weapons if that's what you want, because they are capable of, in a fraction of a second, going through a very long checklist. They're also capable of holding fire, even though it puts them in danger. And humans don't like to do that and shouldn't be asked to do that, really, in most cases. Um, and uh, the final point I would make is, and, I, and I don't, everybody makes this point, but I just think it's accurate and, and should be emphasized. When humans exercise judgment, it isn't always on the side of mercy. Sometimes it's on, it goes the other way, and that might be due to a variety of factors, you know, exhaustion, uh, psychological fatigue, uh, loss of, you know, it could be loss of friends or their units come under fire or many other reasons why they might exercise uh, discretion the other way. So I don't know that um, really folks have thought through exactly what they're getting by wanting to keep humans completely in control and, and, and ban autonomy. Um, this is a great point. I was trying to go through my note to, to find a um, quotation from um, uh, what is international humanitarian law about um, uh, what is it, it's prohibited in, in, in the last, I, I can't find the right word, but it's something about the last for vengeance. Well, a machine... Mm. Machine could be, and I'm not a programmer or a coder uh, in any way, shape, shape or form, but of course our biases get built within um, machine learning and deep learning, et cetera, um, systems, but there are also processes to um, check those systems mm. to try to extrapolate to the extent it's humanly possible, this kind of biases. So um, the, the, the plus side of you were saying, you know, if, if in particular context we are, 
conscious that at war, an individual who is stressed, tired, deprived of sleep and, 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 and various other um, external conditions may just pull a trigger out of you know, a moment of, mm. of, of um, uh, uh, human reaction, well, a machine is not going to feel it's not going to feel the same. And right. so there's two sides. Yeah. If I could pick up on that for a moment, it has always seemed to me that for unavoidable practical reasons, which I think you have just addressed, when one debates the desirability, utility of these weapon systems, it depends on what you're going to compare it to. If you're comparing the weapon decision from an AI to an unstressed, brilliant individual with full knowledge of the circumstances, you get a very different answer than if you're comparing to an infantry lieutenant who's lost 50% of her unit and is desperate. Also, are we comparing this to, for instance, thousands of dumb, is an inadequate word, mines in a minefield? Which is better, the mine that will kill civilians 50 years later, or a system that might, at least theoretically, not aim at a civilian? But our conversation has raised an interesting thought on my part, and I apologize because I think it must be ridiculously basic. What happens when you add cyber warfare to technology-controlled, not necessarily autonomous, but especially autonomous weaponry? Now, presumably, we have a level of uh, impact that may be rather unprecedented. Yes, and I think in many ways we're already there because um, the, one of the things that makes cyberspace unique is just its uh, the speed and volume of data on it. Humans can't possibly keep up with that, so what we have is humans who write really clever algorithms or programs to, to control that, and really that is machine learning, that's AI, and, and as you know, most, for instance, most of our stock trading now is done by algorithms. Uh, not by humans, and, and someday, as I say somewhat tongue-in-cheek, you know, our war will be fought by algorithms. You know, whichever country's got the best algorithms will win the war because that, that's just where we're going. And we can't think nearly as fast as we can uh, program machines to think. It's a, uh, on one hand, I confess it, of course, it's a daunting thought, but uh, it's something that societies have to struggle with. There's no way. I think it's the inevitability that you were uh, mentioning. Um, putting our heads under the sand, it's not going to make it go away. So we either face on the ethical, moral, legal implications, um, or we don't. But if we don't, then there may well be other powers that decide to go ahead, regardless of what mm. those um, hesitations um, are. Um, I think that um, Perhaps maybe the, the, the last question that I'd like uh, to ask, unless Fred has got another one, is sort of your piece of advice for a junior lawyer entering the real world today. What is the one thing that you would recommend to this lawyer, in terms of whether he's studying, whether it's work experience, what is the one tool that they should have to 
Right. Uh, well, I mean, from from my perspective, you know, I'm a I was a government lawyer, never never smart enough to make a lot of money. So if you're interested in that, I can't really <laughs> offer uh, great advice for that. But uh, certainly in the service uh, service of the nation, whether it's a civilian government service or or uh, military. I, I know uh, from experience there, it's true and many times in the outside too, I do have friends that practice uh, civilian law, but familiarity with technology, it won't, it won't surprise you that I say that, but I'll, I'll, I'll give a justification for why I think uh, being good at technology is important for lawyers. I don't, I don't know how widely it's discussed, but um, first of all, I'm taking, uh, taking it one step back. Uh, I'll say we worry a lot about AI and about uh, um, computers and technology, when in fact it's the case that it's almost always the humans that are the weak link in the system. Uh, humans program algorithms. Okay, well, that's, that's an easy argument to make. But maybe more importantly, almost all the time when our systems are breached, it's because of human error, not because the system was faulty or the antivirus system didn't work or whatever. It's because somebody clicked on a link in an email. Now that email may have been very cleverly, uh, very cleverly created to, to appeal to that person and get them to click on the link, um, but somehow we've got to find a way uh, for humans not to be the weak link in the system. Um, I guess analogously, many of the big thefts of data that we've experienced in the United States, uh, including intellectual property, in fact, maybe uh, predominantly the intellectual property theft, have come because law firms have bad cybersecurity. And many times these uh, malicious actors find that the weak link is the humans in the law firm. Uh, because technology companies tend to have pretty good cybersecurity and be pretty savvy about uh, what to do and what not to do when they're online. Not so much with law uh, firm employees, whether it's lawyers or paralegals or, or uh, administrative staff. So we really do need to work on not being the weak link in the system. Lawyers, uh, you know, even if we don't help a lot, we need to at least not hurt <laughs> cybersecurity. So I think for that reason, if, if for no other reason, it's important for lawyers to understand something about technology because this, this issue is, isn't going away and law, law's reliance on technology, uh, society's reliance on technology is just going to expand more. So we really do need to be savvy uh, with that. And then there are just so many interesting areas that are related to privacy, whether it's uh, information uh, security or information laws. Uh, privacy is an incredibly interesting area. Uh, and, and that leaves aside all the, all the things that I've been lucky enough to do in, with cyber warfare and, and, and all. So it's, it's a really fascinating area, and I think it's, uh, it can only um, enhance your value as a lawyer to have that kind of expertise. I did want to say, if I can. Of course. Uh, I'll say uh, one other thing. I know we don't have a lot of time to pursue it, but we, I think I mentioned uh, earlier, we really thought when we stood up Cyber Command, I did, I think along with everybody else, um, that it was going to be like, you know, I don't want to sound too geeky, but, you know, Battlestar Galactica or whatever. It was going to be, uh, you know, network against network and uh, attacking hardware and software and that kind of thing. And I think we sort of missed... Uh, the idea that our, the information space is really what this fight is about. We can, the U.S. Is pretty, has gotten pretty good at protecting our hardware. We're pretty good at protecting our hardware. We're pretty good at protecting our software and our manufacturing base. We're pretty good at all that. We're not perfect, but we're pretty good at it. 
Um, we're also pretty good on the other side of that, the offensive side of all those things. I think we have, we have the technology to be able to engage in, in the fight in all those areas. What we're not good at is whatever it is that we need to do to protect our uh, information, opinion, decision-making space in the United States. Because I, I just think we've found in the last couple of years that the ability of foreign actors or, or just even um, crazy radical actors to affect public opinion in the United States is, is outsized. And we need to do something to help people better understand, at least to make inquiries so they can decide what, what, you know, I'd like to think there's an objective truth. Sometimes there's maybe not an objective truth to every issue, but at least what the truth is to them, as opposed to just relying on what's fed to them. And beyond the really boring answer of we need to do a better job of educating people to be good citizens by engaging in this kind of, you know, semi-scientific inquiry uh, to problems beginning at a young age, we need to start that kind of education. I don't know what else the answer is because uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google and everybody driven by profit, because that's all you can expect from corporations. I think that's um, fair. Um, they are all trying to come up with technological solutions to solve this problem. But really, once again, just like I don't think IHL will save us on the other issues, I don't think technology will save us here. Technology can help us, but it's going to have to be the human mind that saves us here. And we need to do more work on, on that end, which is outside my expertise. But hopefully somebody will be smart enough to figure out a way to, uh, to make some inroads there. And I think that, that that also links in terms of the surprising effect that these techniques have have had um, they they touch upon psychological human instincts and responses so it, it I agree with you it's not how Facebook looks but it's what it makes me feel the the addictive nature has mm. got almost nothing to do with the technology is the response within my brain so I agree that the solutions need to be equally um, multidisciplinary need to look at reality perhaps from a step back mm. and the burden cannot just be on whether it's private actors big corporations or, or, or just governments it's collaborating it's working and we were discussing just before we started recording the podcast about the important role of lawyers as interpreters mm. and uh, perhaps my encouragement to the young generation of lawyers is to be comfortable with not always knowing everything and uh, today, we, in our lesson, we had a class where um, the speaker was a machine learning specialist, and he was mm. talking to us about algorithms and, and variables and functions, etc. And, and it's painful to sit in a class and really ha not having the feeling to understand what the message is. But actually, if you pay attention, you do understand a little bit, and you can ask a question. And when you start the dialectic process, more is comprehended. So it's okay to feel uncomfortable. That's what pushes us to mm. the next step and uh, not to feel quite cozy in our little mm. little world where you know there's only black letters subsection three one little roman two <laughs> <laughs> um fred just looking at you if you have one last comment i would simply ask what have we not addressed that you would like to impart to new lawyers gosh i think i, I i'm not chock full of advice for uh, for new lawyers i'm so old now i i uh, <laughs> So I think I, I, I gave him what I had. I, I do like the uh, the spirit of inquiry uh, continuing. That's a that's a, a great idea. And and uh, sometimes uh, 
I guess when you have a client, this is, I just give uh, general advice that I always gave to young Jags uh, when I had them was, you know, sometimes you can't give clients what they want. They want to do something and you just can't get there. So the answer, generally speaking, I would say should be yes, if, or no, but, right? So uh, the, the just no, flat no doesn't make anybody happy. So let's try to find uh, solutions for the client that will work for the client that are still lawful, of course. Um, but that way we can, we can have a satisfied client. We can also meet our professional obligations. So it's... On that note, we can only say thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thank you.